I think because of how often I make reference to television shows, you probably think you pay me to sit around watching television all day. <laughs> but at risk of uh, causing you to think that way, I'm going to tell you another thing that I've been watching on Netflix. Many of you will remember back in the 1960s, there was a show in England called Monty Python. And Monty Python was famous for slapstick, farcical kind of comedy, uh, just sort of out-of-the-box thinking that surprises you. And often the ridiculousness of their skits uh, were really things that people uh, remembered so well that they memorized all sorts of scenes. I'm sure many of you, if I were to ask you about the parrot sketch, you'd know exactly what you meant. Uh, and remember that sort of classic uh, line, every time I hear somebody say, pining for the fjords, I always think of the dead parrot he tries to return. But what I was remembering, uh, however, as I was leading up to preparing this sermon, was a scene that happened in a movie that Monty Python uh, produced called The Quest for the Holy Grail. It's the story loosely based on the Arthur legend of looking for the Holy Grail. And so there's a group of knights following King Arthur, and so uh, they're on this quest to find the Grail. And as they're going along, uh, they meet Tim the Enchanter. And Tim the Enchanter tells them some of the way they need to go to get to the Grail, but he said, there's a really dangerous journey ahead of you. You have to go through the dangerous cave of Kerbanic. And the real problem about the cave of Kerbanic is there's a horrifying monster that keeps guard in front of this cave, and you cannot pass because he's been the death of so many people questing for the Grail. And of course, they're all shaking in their boots, and so as the, the knights uh, crawl up to the hill just overlooking the cave, and they all start peeking a little bit ahead, and then they're even more fearful because they see in front of the cave there's skeletons strewn about, there's human bones, there's decapitated heads, there's armor strewn all over. Clearly, there's a monster of horrifying power here. And then the mist starts to clear, and they're starting to see that this, this monster is starting to come out, and then Tim the Enchanter says, look, it's there! And then he, uh, as he points, the, the knights are saying, where is it? I don't, I don't see it. And he says, it's right there! And they said, what, is it behind that bunny I see? And then he says, no, it is the bunny. That is the monster of, of uh, the cave of Kerbatic. And of course, then they all laugh. And so one of the knights says, well, I'm just going to go kill it then. So he pulls out his sword and walks nonchalantly. And we all, if you've seen Monty Python, it's probably ingrained in your head what happens next. As he gets within 10 feet of the rabbit, suddenly the bunny leaps out, goes straight for his jugular and rips his head off. And all of the knights are shocked because this bunny is actually this source of tremendous power and might. And they go and attack the bunny and they're all ripped to shreds until finally they find uh, the holy hand grenade of Antioch and throw it at the bunny and it finally gets all blown up. Now why that's a funny scene is the ridiculousness of people's expectations. They see this bunny and they think this is harmless. There's no problem whatsoever, but of course that appearance is uh, very wrong, because what happens is, is this is a tremendous monster of power and viciousness. Now, why I bring this up is because I've been noticing over the past few gospel stories that Jesus is completely exploding one of these popular images we have of him. And the popular image many people have of Jesus is that Jesus is meek and mild. We see those pictures of Jesus with the lamb on his shoulder, and we see those pictures that have a dreamlike contemplative quality, and it sort of looks like Jesus is this wimpy, milk-toast figure who is unable to say boo to a bunny. And yet, what do we find in the past few weeks of gospel lessons? Jesus, in fact, goes far against that view of him and instead is a person who is so incredibly challenging, we almost tend to think that Jesus can be overly challenging and vicious. A few weeks ago, we heard Jesus speaking about the temptations to sin. And what does he say? 
He talks about how it's inevitable that these little children might be led astray, but woe to you who leads them astray. It would be better if you had a millstone around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. That is pretty powerful. Or he says, if your eye causes you to sin, rip it out, because it is much better to have you go into heaven with one eye than to be cast into the eternal fire of hell with two. That is pretty harsh and challenging. Last week we heard about Jesus speaking about marriage and divorce and the incredibly challenging words he uses to the Pharisees who say, well, can I divorce for any reason? And Jesus says that is not what marriage is meant to be. And today Jesus says perhaps the most challenging thing of all. We've probably, if you've been to church for a few times, you will have heard this story and maybe dulled the impact. But today Jesus says something that shocks his disciples. Because what Jesus says is that there is a rich young man who comes to him who seems to be leading a good life. He's honestly asking Jesus, how do I have eternal life? I'm not just living wild and high in the hog. He also says, I've been obeying the commandments since my youth. And then Jesus says, don't worry about it. There's only one little tiny thing you need to do. Boom. Get rid of all this money you have and come and follow me. And remember where Jesus is going. He's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Man is rightly shocked, and the disciples say, I can't believe what you just said. Jesus, uh, how is it even possible for anybody to enter the kingdom of God if what you say is true? I'd like to speak to you today about why Jesus uh, really speaks to us, and why it's so important for us to listen to his words carefully, because it's a message not just for a young man 2,000 years ago, it's a message for us, and a challenging message for us who live a comfortable suburban life, even if we aren't uh, Scrooge McDuck who are sort of wading around in giant piles of money, we are people who, by global and historical standards, have incredible wealth and material benefit. But I also want to speak to you a little bit about why Jesus says these words, because it would be deeply wrong for us to believe that Jesus is, in fact, a ferocious figure who loves to attack, but instead Jesus is someone who loves us deeply and who speaks words not as a a madman attacking, but instead speaks hard words to us so that we might not be complacent and instead be free. I'm going to start with that because it's deeply important to understand Jesus' motivations if we are to understand the power of these words rightly. As you are listening to me read the gospel lesson here from Mark chapter 10, you probably heard some of the highlights that are kind of obvious because they stand out. But there's one little section here that's deeply important and yet is easy to miss. Here's the man who's got riches, and he's challenged by Jesus to ask, have you done the commandments? And Jesus uh, asks him about his commandments, and he says, sure, I've done them. And then the, the really push comes to shove in verse 21. Jesus, looking at this young man, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Now, the, the power uh, seems to come from this shocking thing that Jesus tells him to do, and he's rightly shocked and he leaves. But it's so easy to miss two really, really important words that happen before he says these things. Notice what Jesus does. Verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, there's one thing to lack. Mark makes it very clear that Jesus' motivation is not, let me take this twerp down a peg. Jesus' motivation is, I love this man, and how do I free him from what's burdening him? You know, I think when we look at what's so very difficult for us in Christian life, I think one of the most difficult things for us to appreciate is that what Jesus says and does in every aspect of his life and his orientation to us comes out of a place of true love 
for those that are created in the image of God. And one of the things that I notice many times when we face criticisms from people is we forget to ask ourselves a really important question. The important question is, where is this coming from? I uh, often, as you know, listen to podcasts as I'm driving around, and many times they'll be interviewing a person who is famous, maybe a, a newspaper uh, writer or a person who's an author or a singer or something. And oftentimes what people ask as an interviewer is, how do you deal with criticism? Because you don't have to travel far on the Internet before you realize that everybody seems to be a critic. And if you ever read uh, some of the comments under newspaper articles, you will realize that sometimes the very worst of people comes out in throwing things uh, at a writer that they disagree with. You know what I find most people answer when they're asked this question about criticism is that they say they almost never read comments on the Internet, almost never really pay attention to their Twitter feed. But where people who want to improve listen is they listen to people who actually care about them and know them well. If you want to grow, what you really need to do is to ask, does this person care about me, and can I trust their opinion? There's a great proverb in the Old Testament that says, a wise man loveth reproof. And what that means is this, I want to grow in character and knowledge and virtue, and that means that honest criticism given from a good place is something that I will take on because I want to grow. Jesus loves us. And it's so hard for us as Christians to really believe it, and it is a strange thing for us to have a hard time with, because after all, if there's one thing we talk about incessantly in church, it's about the love of God. We uh, say this uh, every time we pray. We say this about the love of God. We sing. Most of our songs mention the love of God. We hear in the sacrament about God's great love for us. But I have to think that one of the greatest stumbling blocks in Christian life is that we say all of these things, but in our heart of hearts, we don't actually believe it. How easy is it for us to say, yes, I know God loves me, but there are parts of ourselves we hide from him because we are secretly believing that if only he saw these things, then the love he says he has for me would disappear. It's almost as if that famous verse in John 3.16 gets paraphrased by us, uh, which is to say, for God kind of tolerated the world and then he did some things for the world so that he might tolerate people that, frankly, he doesn't like very much. It isn't. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Remember, the only begotten son who is well pleased. So dearly does he love this world, the very world that crucified his son, that he was willing to lay down his life for that world. If you read through the Gospels, not only do you see Jesus piercing the pride of rich and powerful people, what is amazing is the amount of contempt and hatred these people of riches and great pride and authority have for Jesus, not just because he attacks them, but because he spends his time with people they think are contemptible sinners. Think of that great story where I mentioned earlier about, sadly, some of those paintings of Jesus with the lamb seem a little sappy and trite. But that story is incredibly powerful where that image comes from. When Jesus is criticized for the time he spends with sinners, Jesus tells that great parable, and he tells the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and 99 of those sheep he cares for are on the side of the hill. And instead of simply saying, well, I'm glad for these 99 sheep, and this stupid one sheep that went off is going to get what he deserves because he was too stupid to stick around with the shepherd, he leaves the 99 sheep. He searches high and low for that little lamb that ran away, and he puts it on its shoulder and brings it back with great rejoicing. And then he says... There is more rejoicing in heaven for one sinner who repents than for 99 who never sin. Jesus is so powerfully committed to the contemptible of this world 
that it should remind us again and again that when we pour contempt on ourselves, that is not the voice of Christ speaking to us. It is the voice of whatever it is that we have learned, whatever it is we've told ourselves, whatever it is that other people have told us. And it is a lie that is not coming from Christ, but a lie that comes from the Father of God. When Jesus says harsh words to us, we must always keep in mind who it is that's telling us these things. It is not some random jerk on the internet throwing stones. This is the Lord of heaven and earth who sacrificed everything so that you and I and each one of us, no matter where we feel we are, so that each one of us might find eternal life. When Jesus speaks to this young man, it is just the same as what he's speaking to the Pharisees about marriage or speaking to others about dangers of leading children astray. What Jesus hates is not sinners. What Jesus hates are the things that bind us and make the children that were born to be free into slaves. What Jesus hates is the people who were born to live in the light being dragged into the darkness and unable to crawl out of the pit that they find themselves in. And for that reason, Jesus sometimes uses harsh methods to drag those people who are in the darkness into the light so that they might see once again what the truth is. That those who are burdened by chains might have those chains ripped up and find themselves free. When Jesus speaks hard words about casting your eye into the a fire, Jesus isn't saying this to be rude. He's doing it in order to make us understand and examine our lives and ask, where is it the things I'm looking at? Are these things making me to be a person who is better and growing into the person that I need to be? Or are the things I am watching doing, in fact, blinding me to the truth of what God has made me to be? God wants you to be free. In our marriages, Jesus asks us, sometimes really challenging, pointed language to ask, am I ignoring my wife and her needs? Am I running my husband down? Am I going on cruise control in my marriage? Or am I working on something incredibly valuable? And Jesus asks as well, when it comes to this question of money, how it is that it may be blinding us to the things that are most important in life, and how easily we fool ourselves by saying we've committed right things here and avoided wrong things there and forget that our heart is in the wrong place. The first thing to understand about this in any harsh word you hear from Christ is that it is coming not from a madman who is wielding a sword to attack us, but instead a gentle physician with a scalpel who cuts out those growths that are causing us sickness and pain. But the second thing I wanted to speak about is the substance of what Jesus says, because it is a shocking, challenging thing. And as I mentioned, shocking and challenging to us who live in relative wealth compared to the rest of the world. In fact, not only does he say to this young man that he needs to get rid of his riches, he also says that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Shocking! Because after all, that is not an easy thing for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. You know, as I was thinking about how to, to talk about this and why it is that Jesus speaks about this, I mean, it's not that wealth itself is a bad thing. Many of you will have read that book of Job, such a challenging book, but it's a book in which he is stripped of his riches, stripped of his health, and at the end, what does God do? He gives him more riches. Or Solomon is praised at the beginning of his reign and given riches by God. So why is it that Jesus speaks so harshly about this? So I was thinking about this, I thought back to a documentary I saw many years ago when I was a child. And this documentary so long ago, I can't remember where it was set, but I think it was for the Bushmen in the Kigali Desert in southern Africa. And they traveled around watching some of the hunting methods that they used, traditional methods. And what really remember from that documentary was, there was one of the Bushmen who were hunting baboons. And baboons that live in Namibia and in that desert where Bushmen live. 
And baboons are smart monkeys. They're quite clever and they're curious as well, so they're hard to get. They know well enough that when a person is walking around with a bow and arrow, they kind of know you've got to stay far away because that arrow can go a long way. So the Bushman's walking around, finds a bunch of baboons in a group, but they all run off outside a bow shot. So the question is, you're watching this documentary, how is he going to catch one of these monkeys? Well, here's what he did. He had a bunch of shiny rocks or beads. And so he drilled a hole into the side of a hill and put these beads into that, uh, that side of the hill. And he saw that the baboons were all watching him, curious. And then he goes off and walks away. And so the baboons are smart enough to know he's far out of bow shot. So one of them boldly goes and thinks, I want to take a look at those shiny beads. So he goes up and he sticks his hand in there to get the shiny bead. But just as he does that, then the bushman comes out and starts walking towards the monkey. But here's the thing that was really fascinating. The monkey can't get away. He's pulling and pulling, and what he didn't realize as a monkey was, when a hand is really scrunched up and empty and goes through the hole, you can fit it in. But when you put it full of rocks in your giant fist, it means he can't get it back out of the hole. So as he's pulling and pulling, here comes the bushman close enough to shoot him and have a monkey for dinner. Now, what a great parable it is for the way that wealth can operate in our lives. After all, there's nothing wrong with shiny beads. Wouldn't we all love shiny beads? My girls love shiny beads. And we love shiny beads that take the uh, uh, form of lots of zeros in your bank account, hopefully without a minus sign in front of it. Not a bad thing to have the beads, but you know what that monkey did? So attached to these beads, he couldn't let it go, and it cost him his life. Let's just say that that monkey needed to reevaluate his priorities, right? Now, sadly, that happens to us in real life, doesn't it? We may not think that way because we're not Scrooge McDuck, who sort of goes into his vault and dives around into his big bags of money. It's very easy for us to forget that what Jesus says about where our heart is is really true. Don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Store up your treasures in heaven where moth uh, and rust do not destroy because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Why does he say that? What do you love most in this life? Consciously or not, the thing you love most in this life is the thing you will work for. And sometimes when we look at our checkbook, at our bank account, in fact, those things tell a story that's quite different than what we think it is. And if we look at those things, we begin to realize perhaps that what we really think we love is not what our actions say we love. Now, the sad reality of it is, is that many times this works its way out in ways we don't even realize is happening. Do you remember that old song from the 70s Henry, uh, Harry Chapin sings about the cats in the cradle? Kind of a hokey song, but it tells a powerful story. Not about Scrooge McDuck who is running around full of wealth, but instead it tells a story of a man who settles down, gets married, has a child, and knows I've got to provide for my family, and so he works. And as his child first takes some steps, he's not there to see it. And then his child gets a little older, and he brings uh, things for his dad to look at, and he has no time for it. The kid is off at soccer games and his father never sees them and his uh, child is out dating and doing different things in life and graduating his father doesn't see and that chorus is always, um, you know, I don't have time, son, but uh, just a little bit later and we'll do it together then. But of course, the kicker and the emotional part of it, it ends the story where he retires and he finally has time for his son and says, son, all these things we've been waiting for, I'd love to do. I'd love to do that too, dad, but I'm a little busy right now. Next uh, couple of weeks, when it calms down, we'll do it together then. And sadly, it's that story of what goes around comes around. Here's a man who probably didn't think, I'm blinded by money. But the choices he made in his career and in his daily life, in fact, said that he was. He was working towards something that in the end doesn't last. 
We all know what happened. As the Bible tells us, we came with nothing into this world, and out of this world we will take nothing. As people often say, whenever there is a funeral procession, there is no armored car Brinks truck following up in the rear. What we take into this life is what we leave with this life, nothing. The real question Jesus asks us is, do we live our lives realizing that that's the case? And do we work in our lives to build up the things that matter? Here's the challenge for us as we look at this passage. We don't simply say, Jesus, were you speaking to that young man so long ago? It's instead, Jesus, what are you saying to me about my relationship to wealth? Do I use my money in ways that glorify you? Do I spend the resources you give me in ways that build up my family and friendship, that make this world a better place? Do I see the money you give me as an opportunity to grow in virtue personally and to help others grow? Do I see this as an opportunity for other people to be blessed because I have been blessed by you? I know it's sort of a cliche that churches are always asking for money, and sometimes it's because they need it. We certainly do. You know, part of the reason churches are to ask for money is to ask, do you realize why God gave you money? To enrich yourself? No. Part of it is taking care of our own needs, but part of the reason God blesses us materially is that it is a powerful tool for blessing others. When you give to the church, you are saying, I value who Christ is, and I value the work he does in this world. When you donate time that you could be using to make money, and you give it to help people who are cleaning up after a tornado, what are you saying? You're saying, I value some things more than I value money. And you think about that tornado and how terrible it was. Some of the great stories I've seen in the newspaper in recent years are stories about how people in neighborhoods responded when this happened. Of how many people just that were strangers to one another said, can I help you clean up your yard? Can I do something to aid you in this amount of difficulty? These are the things that really shake us up and ask what's important in life. And Jesus here is asking, what is important in your life? And have you taken any time recently to look at your life and to look at how you spend your time and your money and your talents and say, does it reflect what my real values are? Now, all of us are going to fall short of that. That's just the way it is. We're human beings. And Jesus knew it before he called us. There's hope. There's hope for all of us, even when we fall short, because Jesus says here at the end, yeah, that's right, it's impossible. His disciples say, we can't possibly do that. You're right. Human beings can't. Here's the good news. It doesn't depend on you. And what it depends on? It depends on the goodness, generosity, and power of our Lord. All he asks of us is to say, Lord, I'm having a struggle, but I know you know what's best. Have patience with me. Help me. And reorder my priorities in the way that honors you and makes this world a better place. Here's our challenge for this week. Make that a part of your prayer life. Jesus, what would you have me do with the blessings you give me so that I might give you glory and make this world you love a better place? For after all, if Jesus could love a world that crucified him, can't we love a world that has so much need? Can't we use what God has given to us to bless this world? And can't we take the chance that this person who loves us and knows us so well has good advice to give up, even when sometimes it hurts?